prosecution outlined how accounting practices the fuck? What? what kind of likeness is that? If they were great artists, they'll be in a museum. And fucking fodder for cartoonists now? back to another episode of gutter boys this is episode 24 gutter boys is a comics podcast about the ins and outs and the highs and lows of small press comics uh, i'm your host jb along with my co-host cam today we are joined by comic artist creator tom neely tom how are you doing today i'm doing well how are you guys doing not bad not bad all things considered what about you cam yeah hanging in there same stuff different day yeah yeah literally i legit thought today was friday like, I know everybody's like, oh, what day is it? But like, I like I really had to catch myself and I thought I slept through a whole day. I thought it was a Monday when I woke <laughs> up. I thought it was Monday. I, I have no idea anymore. <laughs> yeah, time is definitely starting to lose its meaning now. Well, we're like, what, almost two months into this? God, it feels like that. Just about, yeah. yeah. Something like that. <clears throat> Anyway, uh, so we got some uh, news and questions to address. So I guess we'll just go ahead and start with some news here. So uh, as you all probably know, Diamond has released a press announcement saying that they are going to start distributing comics uh, starting on May 17th, which is uh, coming up here soon, I guess. But DC Comics, feeling uh, that wasn't even fast enough for them, they will be distributing their own comics starting on April 28th. Uh, which is an interesting move, and I think we'll be seeing more of this if Diamond's uh, distribution date gets pushed back further, which it might. I don't know. Uh, what do you guys think? Well, wasn't Diamond halting orders not only to protect like you know their workers, but didn't some of the main printers close down? Yeah, a lot of printers closed down. So does DC have the product? Have these printers reopened? Uh, it doesn't clarify, but it, it looks like whatever print manufacturer they're using for their comics isn't halting production. Yeah, you would. Yeah, you would assume so. I like. I, I like it just because it takes power out of Diamond's hands a little bit. You know, um, I wonder if DC's gonna repair that relationship once Diamond gets up and going. Like, did it say anything about like was it just temporary until Diamond gets going, or is this something they're gonna just go full force into? No comment on whether or not this is permanent. Okay. Interesting if that does change, or if they do make an announcement confirming that this is how they'll be doing it moving forward. It's hard to say. I mean, this stuff is changing almost on a weekly basis in terms mm -hmm. of news, uh, because like literally two weeks ago, there was no word as to when Diamond would be reopening or redistributing comics. So I think we said on the last episode that, and that was like you know a week or two ago when we recorded that, weren't they talking about like August would be the earliest? Right. Yeah. yeah. So now this is changing yeah. constantly. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's, that's the problem with a monopoly, that you get to dictate whatever happens, and that's, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I've, I have pretty no much. predictions. I, I'm not even sure what will happen. I just, uh, I've been kind of against Diamond ever since I first knew about them, so uh, 
I don't know. I could I could see them crumble. I, I'd hate to see the comic shops suffer from it, but I hope that they would be smartly reformed and and maybe more DC and more independent distributors distribution channels would open up. But yeah, I don't know. Hopefully it does move that direction. Like I would love to see, you know, we were kind of touching on it before, but I would love to see like another avenue or, you know, more distributors get in the mix, you know, some that can, you know, specialize in different things. I, I think it's a good thing, but, you know, it's going to cripple Diamond, which, you know, in my opinion, fuck them anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah, there is a comment here. So Diamond did comment on DC's announcement, quote, we value our partnership with DC and will continue to support them as a distributor. Our focus is squarely on getting our industry's entertainment products in the hands of fans as quickly and as safely as possible. Blah, 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 stakeholders, blah, 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 yeah. blah, safety. <laughs> it's like very uh, diplomatic. <laughs> yeah, basically. Like yeah. we don't want to piss DC off, but you know, the CEOs are probably fucking pissed. <laughs> Um, and these are also the, the titles that DC are soliciting in at the end of April will have relatively low print runs. So imagine, wonder what that's going to mean for all those weirdo collectors, <laughs> the, the weirdo collector market out there. They're salivating uh, at the mouth over Batgirl 32 that has oh God. <laughs> There's nothing run. going on in it. Yeah, <laughs> Man, I don't even know what the collector's market's going to look like after all this. I don't know. We'll see, I guess. Fuck them, honestly, but whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let me see here yeah so my i'm actually interested in what marvel's going to be doing in response to this too yeah uh well marvel was like doing those unrealistic like they were trying to like make it seem like they were working with the uh, comic shops by offering like you know returnability on more titles but i think you had to order something outrageous to even get to the point of returnability like always so i know they were yeah. you know waiting for diamond but yeah with dc coming out and saying hey you know we're gonna do this ourselves i can totally see them kind of having their hands you know forced to do so I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, knowing that Marvel is now owned by Disney, if they just were like, oh, fuck comics, let's just farm out our books to IDW and other, you know, they're already doing that with a lot of their children's lines. And I and, saw uh, that. Yeah, like, so like they're that's the Disney model is they always want to like, I used to work for Disney 20 years ago and it's, it was, seemed like they were always trying to get rid of whatever they were creating in house if they could outsource it somewhere else. So this could be, I don't know, I'd hate to see that happen. I mean, not that I read any current Marvel shit anyway, but. Uh, I would see the I would see that being a likely option that they might just shut down Marvel Comics and outsource their characters to other book publishers. It's interesting. Um, and, you know, I would just imagine that. Yeah, that's crazy, especially because there was that rumor going around that DC were possibly going to get sourced to Marvel mm -hmm. because Time Warner didn't like, you know, the acquisition of the comics branch of it. So, you know, we'll see. It'd be very interesting to see where they go, because, I mean, as much as, you know, you love to hate them, you know, the big two are what gets everybody into the store. So they're very necessary to the industry. Yeah, I'd imagine that uh, this is the perfect excuse to give the uh, shareholders a reason to just completely drop comics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah as a priority in any kind of way you yeah know, the, what's that old saying uh never let a good pandemic go to waste <laughs> you know, all these ghouls across the globe are just like taking advantage of what's happening now and it's yep. comics of course is being affected it doesn't impact people as much as say oh i don't know like the healthcare industry yep. but uh we're, we're definitely seeing it kind of affect uh other areas of businesses and whatnot so yeah i don't know I don't know. I wish we had better news. Um, <laughs> yeah, like the past three episodes, it's all been. My my optimistic uh, view of that is that 
we've been kind of in a glut of content comics wise anyway so this might just thin the herd of of what is being created you know there's been way too many you know screenplays being turned into graphic novels to be pitched Absolutely. to movie mm-hmm. theaters and there's just too much licensed property bullshit you know and it's just like yeah i mean sure that's a lot of illustrators and people out of jobs but i mean i i wouldn't be sad to see all that glut of bullshit being published every month go away yeah right for sure. i mean like there's no reason why there's like four iron man books you know like, yeah yeah I, so yeah that's a good point point. and it doesn't make much of a difference anyway because when those books fail which they often do what happens those get artists canceled. get cut Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's the same thing, basically. So, yeah. But it seems like they restart them. It's like, okay, so the last one didn't sell. So let's just put a different team on it. And we're just going to call this one, you know, Iron Man colon, whatever the title is. And it's super weird because it's a cycle that doesn't work, but they still perpetuate it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where having an alternative as a distributor is going to come into play too. So if DC's their own distributor, uh, I wonder, like, I want to see an alternative distributor for small press because I think that's going to be maybe the death blow that we need for Diamond because so many small press publishers that do want to get their books out on store shelves depend on Diamond because there's no one else in the game. So, you know, publishers like Fanagraphics, like they can't really do anything right now. So I don't know if if we can get a new player in the field. Great, because that'll give some power back to these smaller publishers that aren't really able to handle this or don't have uh, the means. I kind of feel like a lot of the smaller publishers or the independents uh, guys might be able to weather through this better because they're dealing more with graphic novels than monthly titles. So they already have book distributors and other distributors in place. So, you know, it's different from like monthly titles that are just done through the direct market and diamonds. So I I don't fear for like places like Fanagraphics and stuff. I mean, sure, things will shift, but they're already mostly dealing with a book distributor and, and sure diamond is probably a big chunk of what their of their business but uh you know they have other distribution already when i was doing henry and glenn forever we were actually for the first five years it was published it was rejected by diamond and then we sold over a hundred thousand copies through independent distribution mostly through microcosm publishing's own distribution but they are always shifting to different uh, book distribution systems anyways along the way so diamond didn't pick it up until we'd already sold that many copies and the diamond distribution didn't really add much more to it so yeah so there are other there are other options already in place and i think a lot of like the alternative publishers and independents and small press already kind of know how to like weather through this and find other means so that's me again trying to be optimistic i i think comics will be fine i just think the whole industry as 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 we know it is going to shift and probably the, the people hurt the most will be the jobbers who do monthly titles and and comic shops unfortunately so right yeah i mean comic shops were already shuddering before this like at record numbers it's probably because there were more of them with the marvel movies and everything i've just noticed in my town in kentucky you know like people just trying to open up comic quote-unquote comic shops but you know they just sell mainly funko pops you know, so yeah. it's yeah, so like, right. I, you know, how much of those, how many, what percentage of those comic shops that are closing were like that, where, you know, they keep like, you know, a few monthly titles, but try to operate as toy shops. So it's funny forever, like in the nineties and the early aughts, it was like, always like, oh, they have to have a Dungeons and Dragons section in the back. Why is that sticking up space for, could be more comics, but, and now it's fun co-pop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But where are you going to have your Magic the Gathering tournaments now? I, they got to fight with the fun co-pop guys, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Hey, so there's like gaming shops around here that people do that stuff at now, which I guess yeah. they like charge for sodas and stuff to pay the bills. Yeah, they have some of those around here too. 
Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my attitudes about this is pretty similar to my attitudes towards those major comic conventions, which yeah. actually leads into the next bit of news. Obviously, San Diego Comic-Con, to no one's surprise, has canceled. Yeah. I think Reed Pop is definitely taking a huge loss this year. I think that's pretty clear because they make so much money on these shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of that is because they're able to cut corners. A lot of the people on the floor are volunteers. These people aren't even paid and they're they're basically just promised a free pass or whatever. Uh, so their profit margin is massive. So with all of this happening, it's going to affect them. How they're going to recover, I don't know, nor do I care, to be honest. I kind of hope they go the same way that Wizard went because it, they were starting before all this happened, they were starting to trend towards the Wizard model anyway. Yeah. So them, if they fold or if they have to scale back, I think that's a that's a positive. I'm trying to think of what shows I've done that are even read pop. I think I avoided most of them, which which Yeah, I I only do like what is that? C2E2 and sometimes Emerald City. Oh yeah, Emerald City was a good one. Yeah. Is New York Comic Con read pop? No, that's that's run by Comic Con. Oh wait, oh, it's okay, run okay. by Comic Con? I think so. Yeah, okay, no, no, yeah, you're right, because they also run San Diego. Right. That's right. I don't know. I, I do miss tabling, don't get me wrong. Yeah. yeah. I, do en- I do enjoy it, but I think I also much prefer tabling at, at smaller shows or shows that focus more on the actual comics than whatever the hell else. I was really looking forward to Heroes this year, but uh, I'm just canceling all shows for myself this year just that's to be smart. safe. Yeah, yeah that's, I mean... That's what everyone should be doing. Yeah. From what I heard, there's a lot of them, sometimes they have to wait until the city actually tells them to shut down and then they can collect insurance against yeah. their convention policy. So they will wait until the last minute sometimes. But that's why I worry about some of these like more red states that are going to try to open early and mm-hmm. like then these conventions are going to happen and people are going to get sick again and we'll see another wave come through. So I'm just going to stay clear this year and yeah. stay home and draw. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably the smartest thing to do. I mean, that's what happened with WrestleMania, right? They were yeah. waiting. <laughs> they didn't cancel it because they had to wait for the city of Tampa. To, so that way, WrestleMania wouldn't have to refund all those tickets and so forth. So the city of Tampa shut them down. And it was all about apparently it was just like holding out for the insurance check, which, you know, I guess you yeah. got to get paid somehow. I love it when corporations and politicians play chicken <laughs> with pandemics. <laughs> It's really great to watch. I think uh, SPX still hasn't canceled yet either, but I would predict. Yeah, I threw something in the lottery, but even if I get accepted, I don't even know if I'm going to go. I'm just going to have to like wait until month of. And even then, I'd probably feel a little uncomfortable going to a gathering that big. But I mean, I still threw my name into the hat because I always do. Yeah. New York Comic Con had been taking applications, which is weird. That's usually (laughs) September, October, right? That one's in the fall. Yeah. It is in the fall. Yeah. But but I mean, New York is like ground zero right now so yeah i mean we talked about how the convention center that they normally use is currently being used uh, as a way to station patients of covid yeah man it's crazy i don't i don't know (laughs) (laughs) that seems like a bad sign the bathrooms at conventions are bad enough as it is (laughs) oh god man tell me about what is wrong with people They're always great first thing in the morning. You got to do, you know, if you're there, you know, it's great first thing in the morning. But once that like first hour goes by, it's just a wash. Yeah, it's it is shameful. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know, man. C2E2 this year. It's always like just baffling how bad it is. I I don't understand it. Do people just forget how to use a bathroom? I I don't. Is this how they use the bathroom when they're at home? (laughs) 
I wouldn't hope <laughs> not, but yeah, it's it's some public psyche thing. It's got to be where like you know it's not your house, so you don't have to take care of it. So. Oh, God, that's grotesque. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, that's it uh, for news for this episode. All right, let's go into some questions, listener questions. Cam, you have all the questions, so uh, go ahead. Yeah, uh, Tom, we got some questions for you. Uh, let me pull them back sure. up here. All right. Uh, the first one is from our friend of the show, Drug Dogs. Um, Dylan, was Glenn honestly butthurt about the Henry and Glenn comics, or was it just speculative? Uh, no, it was, uh, it was real. If there's a comic strip in the, it was on the back of issue one of forever and ever, but it's also in the collected hardback, um, where a friend of mine, uh, Jay Bennett, who was a writer for Decibel magazine was interviewing Glenn literally two weeks after the book was published in 2009, I think the, the microcosm edition. And I gift wrapped a copy to get for Jay to give to Glenn and Glenn, uh, Jay, called me on the way home from the interview. He did a full interview for Decibel Magazine, but then on the way home, he, he called me. He was like, man, he was so bummed out when I brought up your comic. I was <laughs> like, really? What happened? He's like, I just, I'm going to send you a transcript when you when I get home because you should make it a comic. So I did make, there is a comic strip and it's Jay interviewing Glenn and it's in the book and it's his real word for word ac- reaction to first hearing about it. So <clears throat> he was not very happy at all. <laughs> that rules. And he has called me an asshole in Rolling Stone Magazine. So that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Cool. Hell yeah. That rules. Yeah, Hell yeah. that's tight. <laughs> Henry, on the, on the other hand, thinks it's cool. He thinks it's funny. He claims he's never read it, but he loves that it exists, is what he's said publicly a few times. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, Glenn, Glenn comes off as a type of guy who uh, is very super serious all the time. Yeah. No sense of humor and no self-awareness. It's just... Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Zero sense of self-awareness. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, he, he's definitely not the type I would think that could take a joke. Yeah. <laughs> all righty. Second question. Uh, this is mainly for, I guess, all of us here. Kalani wrote in, first place you all are going to eat. Well, that's how I would read it. First place you guys are eating after lockup slash quarantine is over. Hmm. Uh, first one that pops to my mind is this place called Hinterhof nearby in, uh, I mean, in Los Angeles, it's in a neighborhood called, uh, Eagle Rock and it's, uh, all vegan, but German type place. So it's like oh. Wiener Schnitzel and Kassespatzel and like German beers and stuff like that. It's amazing. That sounds awesome. Are you vegan? Uh, yes. Okay. Hell yeah. But not, not politically, just, uh, I just eat that way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not one of those annoying ones. I eat that way <laughs> like at home. It's pretty much vegetarian and vegan when I cook at home. But if I go out, it's, you know, I'll eat whatever. Yeah. Honestly, a lot of my favorite places here in Kentucky are still open, so I'll try to order delivery once a week. But as far as like, you know, being able to go out, my favorite restaurant here is this uh, Vietnamese place just called Vietnam Kitchen. It's won like a bunch of Best of Louisville Awards. And nice. Yeah, it's it's a really great place. I'll probably go there. Yeah, I miss pho. Yeah, for sure. That's one of those foods that doesn't hold up to go. Like it comes all separated no. and yeah, just, I don't know, it doesn't. And I have no way how to make it myself. It's just, I have to have somebody make it for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, I'm probably just going straight to Chinatown. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. There's, there's so many great spots here in the city. I, I couldn't even name one, to be honest. Yeah, awesome. we've never went when I've been there. We should go next time I'm there. Really? Yeah. You, you and I have never hit Chinatown together. Wow, that's surprising. Yeah. Hell yeah. Whenever people are over for C2, we, that's like, we go at least twice. That's, that's a pretty normal tradition at this nice. point. There's a vegan Mexican spot here in the city, too, that I'm definitely going to hit up as well. Awesome. Quesadilla del Reina, I think it was called. But yeah, amazing stuff. Like the entire menu is vegan. 
and it's some of the best Mexican food. Is it in Pilsen? No, actually. It no? is in Bucktown, weirdly enough. Okay. Mm, hell yeah. <clears throat> like right on the line where Bucktown and Logan kind of meet. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I know Logan. All right. Third question came from um, user Gadzooks underscore Bazooka. Uh, have you ever fucked up a commission and totally had to cancel it? Uh, yeah, actually, I've been, I'm trying to like redo it for him, but, um, it actually happened last summer for my friend Ray, uh, was running, he was the manager of a comic shop downtown called a shop called Quest. And oh, yeah. he, he had, uh, bought the, uh, the Batman 1000 blank cover and he wanted me to do a, he knew I was working on the, the book with the last podcast guys. So he wanted me to draw, it was like kind of a weird commission, but it was based on a joke from a podcast episode of theirs and, uh, of Robert of uh, Richard Ramirez dressed as Batman. And then he wanted me to get all of the, uh, the last podcast guys to sign it for him. And then I don't know, I was having, I was just trying to do it while I was behind my table at Comic-Con in San Diego last summer. And it was like Friday. It was like overwhelmed. There was too many people. I was like stressed out and I just totally fucked it up <laughs> really badly. And then like, and then I flipped out cause I'd already had like two of the, two of the last podcast guys sign it. And then I fucked up the drawing. And, uh, so then, and my girlfriend went running around the convention looking for another blank cover copy of the Batman 1000 for me to replace it. And so I then gave that before I drew it to the last podcast guys to sign it. And so I, I, I still haven't done the drawing on it. Because now I'm nervous to fuck it up again. So <laughs> anyway, Ray, if you're listening, I'm sorry. That's why he didn't get it back. You will hopefully get it eventually. <laughs> yeah, I get super tense whenever I have to draw on anything that's already had something done on it. It's yeah. just It just adds that more pressure. Those sketch covers have the worst paper on them too. Like I think it started with just a smudge from my thumbnail and I was just like, oh fuck. And then I just like fucked it up from there. And But they, they put the worst paper on those things for drawing. Yeah, they don't take ink well at all. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I mean, Daniel uh, Warren Johnson, I've seen him do sketch covers and I don't get how he's able to do the stuff he's able to do on that well, paper. He's kind of hard to comprehend in general. So yeah. 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 yeah that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Insane stuff. I actually yeah. read his uh, Wonder Woman book uh, yesterday morning. I read the first two issues. So hopefully DC puts that out because I do. It's a good book. Yeah, it's really good so far. I, I kind of like just the fact that they're, I mean, I've said it before, but that whole like Love and Rockets 8 by 10 size, I love that. Even though some of the books, you know, aren't my cup of tea, I love that they're going with that size for that black label stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've seen some of those. Some of those look pretty good. I bought the first one with the uh, Batman penis. Yeah. So yeah. I've got that. <laughs> I had to have the bat penis for my, my collection. Yeah. I, I wish that but, was uh, the title of the book. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the, yeah, I've got all three of those. Did they, I know they collected it. Did they leave the, I'm assuming they probably didn't leave the bat penis in the collection since they. No, yeah. That was the whole thing. They were going to remove it from all future printings. And oh, I was shit. like, oh, those, those cowards. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a dick. <laughs> right. Show dick, DC. <laughs> yeah. All righty. Uh, another question came from Steve. Uh, when are the humans coming back? Uh, as hopefully soon. I am drawing issue two of, well, okay, so it's a new series that we've planned as 10 issues again uh, called The Jungle, 
where they, spoiler alert if you haven't read The Humans, uh, some of the gang members go to prison. So um, I'm on issue two right now, but, you know, judging, depending on how the comics market pans out, you know, it could be that we, I don't know whether we'll end up doing a series again or if it'll just be a we'll finish the collected volume and that'll come out. I don't know. So it's nothing scheduled for uh, release yet, but my plan is to draw at least the first four or five issues before we get anything on, on schedule for a release. So we were hoping to have something out by the end of the year, but now we'll just see how things pan out with the comics market as it is right now. So <laughs> right. were you all self-releasing that? Or are you going to go with image again? Uh, yeah, well, we, the plan was with image, so we haven't talked to them lately, but, uh, yeah, originally the plan was to, to continue with image. Yeah. That book rules. I was buying that as it was coming out. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I hope we can do, still do it as issues. I, I hope so the market somewhat stabilizes so we can do that again. Cause I really like that format, but I'm also prepared to, to do it as just like yeah, a couple of more volumes. So be volume humans, volume three and four, I guess would mm-hmm. be the eventual set. But, uh, I've been expanding on the, we've been expanding on the world. Like we've been kind of like the first issue is actually 48 pages. Second oh, okay. issue is going to be around 32 pages. So we're kind of like expanding the storyline a lot more and having a lot of fun with it so and now that i feel like i have extra time to draw this year i'm just gonna draw the hell out of it so (laughs) well and you all took advantage of the uh floppy format because you all always did the letters page and the playlist and stuff so yeah i hope it comes out in floppies personally because i love back page matter like that me too that's that was half the fun (laughs) hell yeah uh speaking of humans uh keenan marshall keller wrote in who do you hate most in comics Oh, man. <laughs> you can wow, plead the Keenan. <laughs> Of course Keenan would ask you that. Come on, man. He knows I've, he knows I've got some stories, but it, uh, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't really hate anybody right now. <laughs> Diamond. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, Diamond's being a, the biggest dick in comics right now. So, uh. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, last question came from Cody. Uh, what was it like working with the last podcast on the left dudes? Did you come across anything creepy while researching your drawing? They were awesome to work with. Uh, I primarily worked with Henry Zabrowski because he uh, he kind of he initially wrote a lot of the gags that we turned into comics and drawings for the book. So uh, he contacted me initially, and he also lives in Burbank nearby. So we were able to get together and have beers and hash out ideas. And like our we are both like on the same page from beginning. We we're like let's approach it like an evil mad magazine and like you know he was like i like the way you jump around with styles so like just like play around with it and see what we come up with so it was great um, like every bit of it i mean like marcus and ben were always like approving but they were like very hands-off on the illustration end and just like i just like kind of ran everything past henry and our editor kate and they're only like I mean, I was trying to push things far. I don't know if you've seen the book, but like I tried to push a lot of the image to be very horrific. I mean, the subject matter is serial killers, but it's also playing with humor. So Mm -hmm. it was fun to push that angle. But there were only like a few that actually got rejected by the editors. So and they didn't give me specific reasons but like there were a couple that i think went too far for for uh (laughs) i see in hindsight yeah there's a reason why that one was cut you know but uh for the most part it was great it was very easy and like i i hope i hope to work with them again they they want to do another book i know they have plans to so and it looks like this one's a success so far (laughs) so yeah congratulations that's all it was like charting and stuff that's awesome yeah, we hit New York Times bestseller list. For, there you go. You know, yeah, you can start with that on all your books from now on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hell Pretty yeah. awesome. That's great. All right. So um, we're going to take a quick break. And after the break, we'll be back uh, with... with blah, 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 blah.
JB, you want to do this part? No, we're, we're going to use that. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. We'll be back with Tom after the break. We'll be right back. JB, before I forget, I'm going to email you over. Uh, Pat made a Celery Stocks radio ad, and he sent it to me to put on future episodes. Okay. Awesome. Right. So I got to email that to you. Oh, Let him know oh, there's a $500 deposit that he needs to put down before we move forward with that, brother. <laughs> He's got to know how to grease the wheel. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. And we're back uh, with Tom Neely here. Uh, he's still here for some reason. Uh, he hasn't left. Uh, Tom. I got nowhere to go. <laughs> I don't think any of us have anywhere to go right now. <laughs> uh, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, who is Tom Neely? What is he really like behind the facade? <laughs> no. Uh, so your new book that just came out, though, you know, you did the art for the last podcast on the left podcast (laughs) Um, (laughs) but um no so how long i mean i know with a project that big i'm assuming you had some ndas and stuff how long did it take you how long were you working on that um from when i met henry to the end of the project it was about a year and a half but 
only about six months of real solid hardcore drawing. So off and on, it was like different starts and stopping points for editorial reasons. And some, you know, a couple of chapters got changed and stuff. But yeah, for the most part, it was like most of last year, most of 2019 working on it. Um, I did about roughly 85, 90 illustrations total for the book. And I think at least 80 of those are in it. So, you know, I noticed like, you know, especially like recently you're doing those uh, Keanu strips on your about your dog on your Instagram. (laughs) And, you know, a lot of the comics game now is focused on, you know, we talk about it on here about, you know, social media and having to keep up with posts. So, you know, 90 drawings over a year. I mean, that's a lot of drawings, especially of, you know, a higher caliber for an art book like that. So, you know, were you having to, you know, you can't show that stuff to the world. So were you as active on social media? Were you having to draw more? You know, I know it's kind of a weird question, but I mean, like, did you feel like you had to keep up with appearances? No, it, was, it was kind of a weird thing. Yeah, because like people do want to know what you're up to. And, and I know my, a lot of my fans are waiting for more humans, of course. And uh, but I had enough other like side projects going on last year to keep things you know, posting things like I had uh, Henry England toys that came out last year. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and I did the uh, pastiche comic that was a reprint of my Popeye bootleg comic. Um, but I intend to like continue that series because I've written more chapters of it. Um, so I've, I'm always doing other things on the side, but yeah, it was, it was really difficult, especially knowing that a lot of my fans do like my horror and gore type art that, you know, I, I thought people would be excited when this book was finally able to be announced, but uh, I had to sit on it for quite a while. <laughs> so, and you mentioned, uh, you know, before we were talking earlier off air, you said that uh, you're doing a gallery, but it's going to be a virtual gallery for the book. Is that right? Yeah, we had planned to, uh, my, there's a gallery here in town called La Luz de Jesus. Um, and they, I've worked with them for years. Uh, I had my Henry and Glenn, uh, forever and ever show with them in 2014. And that was a big, like, took over the whole gallery with, like, one room was all my artwork and one room was all the other contributing artists. So that was a really fun show. But anyway, so we were planning my second show with them was going to be all the artwork for the last book on the left. Um, And it was originally going to open April 4th. uh, And then because L.A. got shut down, we moved it to May 2nd. But we're still shut down supposedly through the May 15th, but I think it's going to be longer than that. Uh, so we're now going to experiment with the idea of doing a virtual opening night on May 2nd, where do some kind of like live streaming on Instagram Live or Facebook or something where people will all just walk through the gallery and talk about the art or something. So if we can figure out a way to do like questions or people call in or something, we might do that. But it might just be kind of lo-fi, me and, me and the gallery operator, Matthew, just to... <laughs> Uh, filming me in the gallery by myself. So (laughs) it should be interesting, but I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be fun to experiment with that. So, and all the artwork is already available to look at on the gallery's website, laluzdejesus.com. So uh, you can get a preview of the show there. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you you never really think that you'd be put in a situation like this to where people couldn't go to a gallery. So you got to figure out how to showcase it. Do you already have everything ready in there since it was supposed to open in April? Uh, Yeah, I mean, everything's framed. We're going to we're still going to hang the show, uh, I guess, next week just for the virtual walkthrough. But yeah, I don't we're not sure if people actually be able to come in and see them in person. So Um, but yeah, I framed um, just framed about 20 pieces from the show. Uh, just the main pieces. Each chapter would have like a big splash page portrait of the care of the the serial killer, and then there's like subsequent smaller comic strips and gag illustrations throughout. So um, I framed most of the big pieces for the show because they're all pretty large, eighteen by twenty four. I draw pretty big, so they uh, they look pretty nice. Are you drawing comics on like eleven by seventeen, or are you drawing larger? 
I draw bigger. Uh, I, my humans pages I draw on 15 by 20. The sheets are 15 by 20, but I, I have margins. So I think that it breaks down to about, uh, it's more like 12 by 18 is the actual size of what I'm drawing the pages. But then the double page spreads get bigger. I have trouble containing myself in small pages. So <laughs> I've seen your setup on uh, Instagram. Yeah, your drawing board and everything's huge. And uh, yeah, you got a nice looking studio. So you've been working on earlier at the front half of the show. You said you're about two issues in to the new humans, uh, the jungle. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So was it, you know, there was what, a couple of years? Were you always drawing the humans or because it's been, you know, a couple of years since the books came out? Like, are you always drawing yeah. them or is it something you had to go back to? Uh, it was off and on. Um, there was, we took a break after uh, volume two came out. Keenan and I did a long tour, did like up and down both coasts and did a bunch of conventions. And then by the end of it, we were just kind of like exhausted. So we took like a long break. And then in rethinking that uh, during that time, I wanted to, as as the artist of the series, co-creator, I wanted to avoid the monthly grind of having to having that monthly deadline and doing the comic in real time. So I asked him, I was like, hey, can you, I want you to write the whole next series before I start drawing it so that I have an idea of what's coming and like I can plan it out ahead and then maybe even draw like three or four issues or maybe more than that before issue one comes out so that we're never, because when we were doing the first 10 issue series, it was the first time I'd ever done a monthly title and it was harrowing. Like there were, we skipped uh, Christina, the colorist, uh, most of my girlfriend at the time and we were living together and like we didn't have a day off for like eight months straight. We didn't, we missed Christmas, we missed New Year's. We were literally drawing and coloring on New Year's Eve that year. Um, so <laughs> by the, and then, you know, and then we'd finish a volume would come out and we'd have to go to her for like a couple of months. So we were like just grinded down by the end of it. So I wanted to like space it out and give it some room. And then in the meantime, I tried picking, I had to pick up some freelance work. There were some other projects that kind of like fell through. And so, but during that time I was always designing the characters and like coming up with the ideas and we were thinking about planning the jungle as, as he was fleshing it out. And so he's actually written all 10 issues already. And I've seen the first five scripts so yeah we're just we're well ahead of like what would be a normal schedule which feels good to me so like i'm not worried about anything coming out until after i'm done with at least issue five and then you know with the pandemic shut down maybe i have even more time to work on it so (laughs) so before the humans was that your first book that you did with image i know you've kind of been a journeyman in comics you've been kind of everywhere yeah so did you like working with them i know they're pretty hands-off from what i've heard outside of like distribution. Yeah, I mean, we were happy with uh, everything with Image. They, um, We were initially planning to self-publish it. We were going to do a Kickstarter, but uh, Eric Stevenson caught wind of what we were doing and contacted me and asked us asked to see it. So we kind of just like, it just kind of fell in our lap. But uh, once we saw the deal and, and talked to him and everything, we were, we were just like, well, I mean, it's it, I, we were totally happy with it. I mean, we, we, our main thing was that we own our characters and we get to do whatever else we want to with them. And uh, creator rights, their contracts are really great for that. So beyond that, I mean, it's a bit frustrating when you're, you know, when you're out at the same comic shows and you see like the lines for people wanting to get Saga signed and you nobody's there for the humans but you know they but image always treated us well it's just like they couldn't put they they're a very small run operation so they can't put a lot of publicity behind their smaller books and but we knew we were the weirdos in the room to begin with we were doing like kind of a weird underground comic on image label so we were happy all, all the way to where we were both 
come from a self-publishing background and a punk rock background and we're we're hustlers we're ready to like you know do whatever to make it work on our on our own so and uh yeah them being hands-off and letting us own everything is great so i would be happy to keep working with them uh with for future humans and yeah we'll see what else so before humans i guess the main project was the henry and glenn books right um, well, sort of. Uh, I've had kind of like a schizophrenic career. Um, I started uh, self-publishing in the early aughts, around 2000. Actually, my first comic was in 1999, but I uh, started doing conventions and stuff around 2000, but didn't really... I was taking it seriously, but I was still learning along the way. I think the first significant thing I did was my first graphic novel, The Blot, which I self-published, um, and it went on to... I won an Ignatz Award that year, so that like got my kind of my, my name on the in the in the atmosphere and like kind of propelled my career but uh in in good ways like that's what that was kind of the beginning for me but at the same time i had been me and some friends have been self-publishing just like a little mini zine of henry and glenn forever just as a joke and we just thought it was the dumbest thing ever we didn't think it would go on to anything else but it did it kept like getting more fame and more people demanding it so after the blot came out i set up a deal with microcosm publishing to do more henry and glenn comics and so that kind of like boomed from there so but the in while henry and glenn was taking off i was hard at work on my second graphic novel which is another like artsy poetic kind of like werewolf horror story that i was self-publishing so i was juggling doing like spoof henry and glenn comics while trying to do my artsy poetic comics at the same time and then yeah so it was kind of like going back and forth but i had like two different kind of disjointed careers going on for a while one like where the indie indie world was paying attention and then like the punk rock world was paying attention to henry and glenn and they didn't really they crossed over somewhat but not not totally i was actually looking at like i saw you posted pictures from the blot and i didn't catch that when it came out unfortunately but it looked awesome that was each because uh, i know you posted just like the cover and the because uh, i haven't seen the book was each like mm -hmm. uh panel was the the blot just completely different i mean because it looked like a splatter um in yeah the it, was, it was it was actual ink splatters on the page yeah, yeah it's so, fucking awesome it's all cool. i do everything uh analog by hand so yeah it's it's a book about it's a mostly silent uh graphic novel kind of drawn in a sort of i don't know if people compared to like ec cigar kind of style and uh, or floyd godfordson i was very influenced by those 30s cartoonists at the time mm -hmm. but kind of went with the more like surrealistic story that, about a man being plagued by a giant ink blot that eventually kind of becomes a part of him so yeah it was I, it was a it was a fun book. I'm proud of it. I think it still holds up pretty well. Some people really like it still. There's parts of it now I look back, I'm like, ah, but I mean, it was 2007. I'm much older now. So. Right. <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, you mentioned uh, E.C. Sagar. So you actually got to work on a Popeye comic. I mean, besides like Pastiche, because I ordered Pastiche from you, but um, you actually got to do a few issues for IDW's Popeye, right? Yeah, that was that was really fun. It actually kind of came about because of the the work in Pastiche. So Pastiche is a recent reprinting of a bootleg uh, Popeye comic I did in 2010, um, where just Popeye kind of has an existential meltdown and has a fight with like a hundred different versions of himself. And it's, it's it's surrealistic, kind of similar in tone to the blot, but like more humorous. And um, anyway, I'd shown that to some people, including Roger Langridge. And so I think when Roger was working on the ID Tub series he suggested me uh when they needed a fill-in artist and um so i ended up getting to draw two uh sapo and 
modest nozzle backup stories for, I think that was issue two and four of the IDW series written by Roger. And then I drew all of issue three, which is a wimpy boxing against the Phantom Menace story. So that was like super fun. That was like a dream job to work on that. Yeah, I can only imagine like just waking up knowing you're working on a Popeye book. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was awesome and working with Roger was great. Uh he he's I learned a lot from working with him. He's just an awesome writer and just like great dude to work with. Um and he was, you know, he was very open to me like getting to, you know, change things and uh, you know, he wasn't very strict about like his his page breakdowns. He like he was just like, you know, here's the here's the setup, here's the joke, here's the punchline. As long as those things line up, you follow, you know. He's like do whatever you want with the other panels. So it was like I got to be expansive in my storytelling as well, but like learned a lot from working with like his rhythms and his beats because he's just he's a great comedy writer so it was fun didn't um and you know i might have it kind of mixed up didn't somebody like bootleg an original page that you did for your popeye run or something like that oh yeah yeah that 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 did happen somebody sent me that on instagram or something i think it just turned out to be like some like somebody in it was like i forget which country but it was uh like a somebody in like some like foreign market it was like somebody who was like doing handmade paintings of comic book covers and stuff and like but they sent me the picture out of context and i was like what is this like weird bootleg of my popeye comic but because it was signed they had signed it with my name but then if you look closer the the other artist's name was underneath it so it's like they signed my name as part of the artwork but, <laughs> but they're trying to it was weird like but i think it was like kind of one of those things like where you're like seeing like a bootleg market in like a third world country and like somebody was just making paintings of comic book covers and like mine was among one of them so wow. it's a weird little uh history but yeah i've been i've been bootlegged a couple of times too there was a i did a very popular image of moby dick uh, around 2008 i think that made prints of and stuff and it was on my website and it just like circulated like crazy online without uncredited like even before there was memes and stuff and like i even eventually saw it like being sold on like blankets in china and stuff like that <laughs> i was like what's going on and there's some punk band that used it on one of their t-shirts and i i wrote to them I was like hey that's my artwork and they're like oh we're sorry we just found it on the internet we thought it was like from the 1930s and I was like no I did it like last year <laughs> so they like offered me money I was like no just you know don't don't use it without permission <laughs> hire artists yeah for sure so, I think that's just a testament to how good your stuff is then yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean that was the funny thing with that one piece particular Moby Dick people like really thought it was just like some lost 1930s illustration I was like that's kind of cool that like people don't but it was also kind of frustrating but I also yeah, sold right, a lot right. of prints so it was fine not a big deal bootlegs are always funny and like the world is getting weirder so you can't really fight it anymore so I, I, I don't even even know how much uh, like the humans has been read digitally for free without my knowing so <laughs> yeah well going back to that Popeye book I feel like that is a reoccurring thing with comic creators doing initially what is a homage or a fan comic and then later down the road being hired for doing that exact same thing because mm-hmm. i know uh, buster moody had that happen to him when he yeah. made his uh, ninja turtle fan comic and then yeah. you know fast forward about a year or two later and he got hired by idw to to do some turtle stories so did yeah. he actually yeah. do a, a run i know he did some covers did he do some like interior pages yeah yeah he I did need to find those issues then yeah his turtle stuff kicks ass he didn't do nearly enough, in my opinion. They didn't hire him as often as I think they should have. But yeah, he's done some stuff for them. That's awesome. That's cool. 
That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Especially, like, I mean, if you're dealing with, like, Popeye's, like, kind of in a weird kind of uh, uh, in-between land of, like, aspects of him are in the public domain and then aspects of her are owned by King Features. So, like, I don't know. Like, I mean, people do their own bat, bootleg Batmans and shit like that all the time anyway. So, I think it's just, for me, it was it's part of my nature of, like, wanting to parody things and, like, play with, like, characters I love. So, you know, I do, I do stuff with Nancy, too. But, you know, I do it in throughout Henry and Glenn there's like parodies of other comics and everything too it's just part of what I do so it's always been fun but yeah I think anybody I I think more people should bootleg do bootlegs of their characters because they'd probably make more interesting comics than what the licensed people are making yeah for sure yeah at this point we should have uh, an omnibus anthology of Garfield comics (laughs) (laughs) that would be great we've said it on here but uh like that issue of garfield that they just randomly got ben sears to draw was so fucking good just because the art was so crazy on it but yeah there was a jeffrey brown did a wolverine bootleg like about 10 15 years ago that's really good there's of course the josh simmons batman yeah uh, talks about that one's pretty good Mm -hmm. but yeah there's been some good ones along the way Definitely. Didn't Josh Simmons do a recent like Batman story? Not the infamous one that he like sent out, but wasn't there one somewhat recent where it was like Batman and a homeless person? I didn't check it out, but I feel like I'm not sure how recent. Yeah. Okay. Were you mainly was IDW pretty good to work with? Like not trying to get you into any kind of like dirt or anything, but like that was more, (laughs) I'm guessing, like editorial input than say an image, I would assume. Um, well, uh, it's complicated. I don't get too much into it because there is person involved that, uh, would answer Keenan's question, but, um, no, okay. <laughs> IDW, I had no problem with IDW. Um, it was one of the editors, uh, and we had no problem while working on the book. Everything was great while working on it. It was a year later. We had a weird falling out. Um, so I don't mention him by name anymore. Uh, but working with IDW is fine. And I've done a few covers, bo- uh, not bootlegs, <laughs> variant covers for them since. And, uh, I don't know. They paid on time. They, they were, the editors at IDW were happy. It was the, uh, sub sub editor of the series that I had a problem with. Um, the editors at King Features who were overseeing the whole project loved what I was doing and they were encouraging them to hire me to do the rest of the series. But, uh, that came down to, I, the page rate wasn't good enough for me to be able to take on a full-time job doing that for like two 10 months. So I had to bow out after issue four. And uh, it, I think after that, it kind of like bounced around from like three or four different artists and including Roger Langridge and some others. So is there even a Popeye book still going? I know they were doing those like Popeye classics for a while that was like reprinting, but yeah. is there still like a new monthly going? I think that's it. Um, last year, King Features did a cool thing. Well, yeah, it was it was a cool thing. They, it was Popeye's 90th birthday. Um, they did a series every Sunday. They released a new comic strip by a different artist, and a lot of them were alternative indie artists, and I got to do one for that as well. But those were like officially uh, sanctioned by King Features Syndicate um, and run on their website. So that was kind of cool to actually get to come back and do official Popeye again for King Features without the uh, the previous problem. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. And working with King features is great too they like they loved what i did they i didn't have any problems with uh, the editor t uh for i'm not sure how to pronounce her last name um forgner i think t uh it was a great uh, editor to work with and um yeah uh, they they loved what i did so i didn't have any problem they even originally requested that there was no violence like popeye wasn't supposed to punch anybody because they're trying to steer clear of that but i still snuck a punch into my comic strip so <laughs> that was fun nice nice <laughs> you've got to popeye's got to punch somebody yeah, wait, what, yep. why is that? 
uh, I mean, that's that's how he talks. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just always ends up in fisticuffs. So yeah, well, I mean, like, why would they want to steer away from the thing that he's known for? Oh well, I mean, modern politics and violence for kids and stuff like that. I mean, there's a faction of King Features that is really pushing like Popeye for kids right now too, with like some new animated series that take all of the fighting and all of the uh, everything out of it. They're just I don't know. They're from a Popeye stand a fan of anything real Popeye. They don't cut it, but it's their attempt at you know getting a new audience of five year olds, and I think it's misguided. But that's what they're also doing right now. For, so, so strange. They're trying to avoid too much violence or too much anything that would be considered offensive now. I mean, like Looney Tunes isn't shown on TV anymore. Like stuff, stuff like that is considered really offensive to modern parents and children. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's it's super disrespectful to the coyote community having them run into a wall <laughs> like that. <laughs> thinking, <laughs> thinking it's a real opening. Uh, Roadrunners aren't that vicious in real life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a mural, you dummy. So, um, did you uh, go to school for art or did you go to school for comics? Any kind of, you know, comics education? Yeah, no. Uh, well, well yeah, I went to school for art. I originally went to school for art education in Tulsa, Oklahoma, at University of Tulsa, which was near. I grew up in a small town in Texas, so wasn't far from home. But studied art there, got my BFA, and then I went on to San Francisco Art Institute to get my MFA in painting. I was kind of always doing comics on the side on my own, but I, growing up in Texas and Oklahoma, like I didn't really, once I kind of outgrew Spider-Man and Superman, I was like, uh, well, I guess I'm not growing comics. I'm going to go do fine arts. So I got into painting for a while, but then art school uh, in San Francisco introduced me to underground comics and alternative comics and the world of DIY self-publishing in the late nineties there. So I was like, whoa, wait, I can make my own comics. And simultaneously, the art institute kind of turned me off of the fine arts world so i was like i grabbed i went back into comics during that so i started uh making and self-publishing my own comics at the same time i was getting my mfa in painting and then when i left art school i moved to la to work in animation and freelance work and and but the goal was to just keep making my own comics so and you're still doing it today kind of sidetracked <laughs> yeah so um i would consider Comics wise, I'm largely self-taught uh, by my, I mean myself and then other peers that I've met along the way. Um, but I went to school more for like fine arts painting training. So there wasn't any really, yeah, I was still, I was probably part of the last generation where they severely frowned on comics as an art form in art school. So uh, art school confidential wearing very true to me at the time. <laughs> I actually haven't seen that. Are you talking about the comic, the little pamphlet or the movie? Uh, both, hey, okay, uh, but, yeah, seen, yeah, especially the comic. Yeah, I have yeah. the comic actually uh, pinned to the wall of my studio in art school because I was I, I had to look at it every day to remind myself that I was surrounded by people that hated comics and I, <laughs> I could get through. <laughs> but yeah, that's when I discovered people like Dan Klaus and Robert Crumb, and I was like, whoa! I, I, comics can be made for adults, and they can be weird, and they can be whatever you want. So I was like done with uh, fine arts world at that point and wanted to just make comics. It's kind of crazy because like I feel like if most people knew that comics were for adults, like the mainstream, I feel like comics would be pretty successful. I mean, in the way that like regular books are, it's just kind of weird that you have to find this subgenre 
of comics to find like the real stories. It's just, it's bizarre to me because that's where the best stuff is. Yeah. And, uh, for me, it was uh, one of the first ones that I came across was, uh, uh, grit bath by Renee French. And I, I found it in a dollar bin or actually I think it was a quarter bin back then. Now they're dollar bins, but, and I was just like, what the fuck is this? It just like melted my brain. And I was like, I, that's all I want to find is more weird, fucked up comics. <laughs> and I don't know if you remember grit bath, but it's like, Early Renee French stuff was really disturbing um, in the best way. So <laughs> I've never seen that book. I've seen Renee French stuff, but I've never actually seen that book. Uh, were they from San Francisco as well, where that was all booming? Um, I think, I think, uh, yeah, I think she was Bay Area at the time. I'm not sure where she lives now, but, um, yeah, so yeah, I'm a fan around the same time. I, yeah, I discovered Dan Klaus and, and, uh, but it, it was, uh, mostly from Comics Experience, it was a comic shop in San Francisco that's still there, and Comic Relief, which closed sadly in, uh, Berkeley. But those stores were Wonderlands. They had everything, you know, from the earliest days of Undergrounds on up to all the current DIY self publishers. You just see just endless of zines and self-published books by from all over the country and that was back in the day when before diamond had taken over the monopoly and squelched all that out of comic shops so yeah there were I was distributors watching, for that stuff back then <laughs> i was actually re-watching ghost world uh in the past couple weeks and like i just completely forgot there was like a zine store in the movie mm -hmm. and i was like god that would you know you've got quimby's and stuff but you know they have to sell real books as well but it's just crazy that you know there were once upon a time you could find a shop like that Yep. There's still a few out there, but they're few and far between. And sadly, yeah. we're going to lose some right now. Yeah. The smart ones will weather through, I hope. <laughs> Hopefully so, yeah. Because it's like, you know, independent press is always going to be there. You know, we were talking on our last episode, um, you know, comics have survived so much. And, you know, we were talking about it mm -hmm. earlier even. They're not going to go anywhere. It's just going to be kind of weird where they go from here. Yep. Uh, so, Tom, is there like a dream project you would ever want to work on? Like, what would that be? Hmm. That's a... I mean... It's a tough one. Uh, I've, I had, so I had two projects that I did in the last, uh, in between the humans and the jungle right now, or in the last podcast book, but it's been, this is also a big part of why the, the humans was delayed for a while. Um, I first started working on a book, uh, with a rock star that I'm not sure I can name because the project never came to fruition, but I spent a year developing a graphic novel, uh, and I drew the first 30 pages and designed like characters and environments and everything thing and sent it all to him and I got down to talking about like how do we approach this I even had meetings set up with publishers and it just I don't know nothing happened after that so I spent a year working on that and that seemed like it would be kind of like a dream project because he is you know a big hero of mine um, so it was great to work with him he's a super nice guy uh, but I just I don't know what happened <laughs> is, um, is this the same project where you had your pages exhibited uh, no, that, so then after that, so that one fell through and then I started on another one Then that was going to be working on a, I can say this, it was a graphic adaptation, graphic novel adaptation of Nick Cave's novel, uh, when the ass saw the angel. Okay. Yeah. And, um, so that was another project where I was working with a writer at the time who wanted me to, uh, draw the project. Uh, and she had all the, uh, supposedly had all the, um, connections to Nick Cave and everything. Uh, I can't go into a lot of details about how it all fell apart, but, um, yeah, I, I uh, had to cut ties with the collaborator. And so that project ended, but that was another piece I did about 25, uh, full 
fully painted pages, full opening chapter of that project. And that took me about six months to, or more to, to develop and work on. And so having two projects that I thought would be dream projects with Rockstars fall apart made me very happy to go back to my own stuff, uh, my own creations, and rethink, like, what are my goals in yeah. this career? And it makes me really happy to come back to work with Keenan. And uh, and I'm working on some of my own personal projects, too. I've been slowly working on a third graphic novel of my own uh, that follows the blot and the wolf. Um, so, and, you know, just doing other fun stuff. Like, I, I hope there's another last podcast book because I still do, I still have to do freelance to pay the bills because comics don't pay that much. But, mm-hmm. yep. but um, <laughs> yep. you know, when I get a good project like the last book on the left that pretty much funded all of last year for me to continue drawing comics right now so you know when i get through the next couple of chapters of the humans i'll find a hopefully find another big project that'll fund the next six months of comics so that's kind of how i just bounce back and forth so i think that that's the long long answer to your question short answer is i think i'm working on my dream project right now i'm working on the jungle with keenan and i'm working on my own graphic novel and keenan has some other ideas for future books that i think sound great and i love working with him so i don't know i think i'm i think i'm in a really happy place with my current future of comics that i want to draw freelance wise making money that's a different question (laughs) but yeah but uh but yeah as far as projects i want to work on my slate feels full for the next like four or five years of uh stuff i want to draw so that's great and i mean you're in la county so it ain't cheap to live out there no but i so i i I mean it's a bit of a condition i'm lucky i own my house so um i uh made a lot of money when i was working in animation for disney and i created a good situation for myself to like i'm not worried about rent right now so, um, but I mean, LA is still expensive in a lot of other ways, but I am lucky in that, in that respect that I, I own my house. So I, I mean, I worked hard to get to, to own it, but, right. but yeah, I, I feel lucky now that I, I do and I can uh, be more decisive about what projects I want to take on. So can I ask what projects you worked on at Disney? Um, well, I mostly, nothing major. I mostly did, uh, online web cartoons and video games, flash games and stuff like that. So it'd be like, Hey, we've got Lilo and Stitch movie coming up. We need to make five uh, games that can be played online to promote the thing. So I worked on a lot of stuff like that. So it was a, it was an interesting job. I didn't work yet. I worked on nothing that I'm proud of or that I can even show because it was all just like it was all just like stuff that they're done and they have contractual stuff where you can't really claim that you've you know yeah. drawn anything but uh it was a great learning experience because having to you know each you know week to week you're drawing different kinds of characters in different styles and they were at the time they were very strict about being on model yeah so it was like it was kind of like taking a master class and learning how to illustrate in different styles and uh, inking and so I learned a lot from that and I, I really I enjoyed it for a while until I had this awful art director who was one of the reasons why I ended up leaving but uh but my goal there was also always to leave and and go freelance and try to devote more time to comics so it was it was a pretty good experience overall but I would never go back to it I do not like working in cubicles I don't like the office situation yeah <laughs> I like I like working at home so <laughs> Well, it's funny you mentioned, you know, having to work on model and being consistent with those. Adapting and learning to that process, I'd imagine, like for you, was that difficult initially or was it something that you were easily kind of able to adapt to? I think it was something I was always interested in because I, uh, I don't know, I've, I've always, I think 
partially because of, I came more from uh, fine arts before when I jumped into animation and comics that I, I was already thinking more in line of like, how does the style, like, how do you approach a project based on the style that it needs to be the story? What style can tell the story the best way is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was interesting to me to like be forced to try, to try different styles for different storytelling mediums and then thinking about that as I was like developing my own work I, w I could be like okay for the blot I want to draw sort of like this like 30s cartoon style but then for like you know another project when I'm working on like something for a heavy metal album cover I'm drawing in a completely different way so and that's I've always been interested in jumping around that way like being a chameleon but I think I've slowly developed some like recognizable things that make it all look like me in a, to a sense, but I do, I don't know. I think it's an interesting way to work to like jump around and mimic styles just to like see like, and especially in the medium of parody, like Henry and Glenn, then it's like, you know, the joke can be served best by being told in a different style sometimes the way a mad magazine does it or others. So, yeah, I, I mean, I've always been of the opinion that it's important for cartoonists to be able to draw outside of what they're comfortable with or what they're yes. familiar with and, and, and just really being able to adapt and change their style on a whim, but also yeah. being able to control and be consistent with those decisions. That's a tricky thing. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that is the hard part. Yeah, but I, I always, I'm always looking to challenge myself with the new things. And you know, with like the jungle right now, I'm it's a prison comic, so I'm challenged with like much more claustrophobic situations and a lot of people just like sitting around talking and stuff. So it's like a new challenge to like make those pages interesting, and I'm really enjoying that. And I'm so it's like every I don't know everything I do, I'm trying to learn something new from it. So I, I enjoy looking for those challenges that make me try something out of my own element. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure you're loving all that resource images you're looking through about prisons too <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> yeah knowing more about uh prison cafeterias than i i think you would ever care to know oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i've been watching lots of prison movies and stuff like that but uh yeah keenan's been doing a lot of research too he's like he's it's gonna be fun i mean if we do get to do the series we're gonna have back matter where you like learn how to make a shiv and yeah hell and yeah <laughs> how to make pruno toilet wine and stuff like that so uh just watch oz yeah, it's like a documentary <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've watched some Oz. I watched, uh, I watched like the first four seasons of Orange is the New Black. It's okay, but it kind of like becomes less of a prison movie after a while. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I, I, I've been enjoying some of the like lower budget, like like Blood Fist 3 is actually a really great prison movie. I, I love B movies and C grade movies in general anyway, but uh, yeah, finding some of the weirder ones or like, you know, uh, weird sci-fi movies that take place in a space prison and stuff like that. It's uh they're fun. Yeah. Um, I, I love that era of, uh, of filmmaking that was just so fixated on prison movies. Mm -hmm. Like in the late <laughs> 70s, early 80s, it was just back to back to back, especially like, yeah, for, for example, like a lot of those uh, Hong Kong movies that oh, yeah. kind of copied that model and you had like back to back to back prison movies or escape from jail movies or whatever. Yep. Yeah. And then like in the early 70s, all the caged heat and like all those uh, Roger Corman exploitation like, yeah, prison yeah. movies. Some of those are great. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, that's kind of like we're kind of we we draw a lot. I mean, I don't think that I make comics that are trying to be cinematic. I like to make comics that are comics. Yeah. But we we definitely I mean, with the humans, our main inspiration is exploitation cinema. So it's like biker films was a big part of the first series. And now prison exploitation films is a big influence on this series. So it's a lot of playing with those ideas but then like try not to take too much cinema influence and just make it com make good comics but uh but yeah definitely in that exploitation realm is it's it's a fun place to play because you can just be ridiculous yeah and i think those influences go back and forth with comics and and film you know mm-hmm 
definitely for better or worse you know, sometimes yeah. it's good sometimes it's bad <laughs> for sure i think for we sure. all we all learn from i mean we're all visual storytellers and the film is too and i love film um so i'm, I'm constantly watching movies but uh but yeah i definitely like when i'm approaching a page I, I think too many comics try to approach them cinematically with too many wide panels and just like yeah not enough going so like i've been with this comic really forcing myself to do a lot more panels per page get like really just like make it weird layouts and like stuff that you couldn't really do with a film because i just i don't want it to look like one of those graphic novels being made as a screenplay right (laughs) yeah you're not being you're not making a storyboard you're making a comic right yeah exactly as it should be for sure so is there anything else that you want to cover or um pretty good i mean uh, just the uh, the uh, art opening live stream will be may 2nd saturday night okay. um it'll it'll be on my instagram uh yeah if, uh, you mentioned my instagram and twitter hell yeah whatnot website yeah i don't know yeah that's all good Awesome. I have a Patreon, but I don't know if you plug that shit. Yeah, you uh, can. <laughs> you can plug whatever. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's patreon.com slash Tom Neely. I'm actually, you know, I, I do a lot of process blogging of the humans. So anybody that's interested in watching the jungle being created, they can follow me there. It's only a dollar a month for the blog. So uh, I post there couple of times a week if I can. But yeah, that's, that's the main thing I'm up to right now. It's working on the jungle. <laughs> And right. you, you have a Instagram, right? Yeah, it's I Will Destroy Tom. And then my Twitter is Tom Neely Art. And then my website is I Will Destroy You.com. Cool. All right. And then uh, humansforlife.com is the humans website. We need to update that shit, though. <laughs> <laughs> who, who does that between you two? Uh, Keenan handles a lot of that. Okay. Yeah, some busy drawing. So I, I let him handle all the mail order and stuff. Nice. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, that about does it for episode 24. We want to thank again, Tom Neely, for joining us on this episode. Thank you. Uh, Hopefully, we'll all be able to link up at a show together in 2021. Definitely. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Thanks for listening. Stay gutter, y'all. Tell your children.